Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, Today, my guest is Eddie Caparucci, and he is going to talk about inner child work and porn and sex addiction. He shares his story on a very deep level and personal level about how he was able to use this work to overcome his own addictive process and in time be able to give that healing to others. Is a great guest, and I really appreciate him coming on and sharing his story in such a genuine way. So I really hope you enjoy it. Before we start, I just want to thank everybody who has left a review in iTunes. I really appreciate the support and the encouragement and that people are finding the Addicted Mind valuable. It just means a lot to me to hear that and to see that. So if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes. And at the same time, that helps get The Addicted Mind podcast noticed. And I really appreciate that as well. Also, we are growing our Facebook community. So if you would like to continue the conversation, you can just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and keep the conversation going online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Eddie Caparucci, and he is going to talk about inner child work and sex and porn addiction. Eddie, please introduce yourself. Hey, Dwayne. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate that. As you say, I am Eddie Caparucci. I'm a counselor. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I have a private practice in Marietta, Georgia, 
with my wife, Terry. I specialize in the treatment of sex and pornography addiction, and I've been doing it for about 10 years now. I also am the administrator of two websites, and that is uh, Men Against Porn and Sexually Pure Men. And I just have a real passion, having struggled through this myself, I have a strong passion for helping individuals to be able to overcome this in their area. And one of the ways I do that is through something that I created called the Inner Child Recovery Process, which goes back to childhood pain point. Because I really believe the road to recovery for our addiction goes through our childhood. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's so true. When when we, we look at addiction in general, there's a lot of roots of childhood trauma and pain that kind of feeds the addictive process. So tell me a little bit about your story and how you kind of stumbled into working with, I guess, inner child work. And, and we'll talk about a little bit about what that means and, okay. and uh, go into more detail. But I'd first love to hear your story. Okay. My story uh, starts with a young boy whose father died when I was five. Uh, my mother was left with four children. I was the third oldest. After he passed away, my mother had a nervous breakdown. And all of us kids were sent out to relatives that we didn't know and stayed there for about a year while she was recovering. And wow. then we were brought back. And when we were brought back after, because she thought she was ready, but she wasn't. She had another breakdown, and we got sent out again. But now we got sent out to different relatives. Each of us, the four, we went to several, our own ways, so we weren't even with our siblings. And now I'm with other people who I don't really know. And I'm there for about three months before finally we come back, and she'd be able to solidify the family. But, again, a young mom, four kids, you know, mid-60s, 1960s, and trying to raise us. And I had two older sisters, so they were the ones who were always looking after me. And basically, as you can imagine, sisters who are, you know, 16 or 14, they don't really want to be dealing with a seven-year-old boy. They want to be yeah. to their American bandstand and things like that. So I found myself very isolated quite a bit as a child, you know, just on my own. And as I got older and I did become, eventually we moved and my mom remarried and we moved into a neighborhood that I had quite a few friends that were there. But what it did, what it did was it already set the stage for me to suffer with an abandonment disorder, an attachment disorder that dealt with my abandonment. And I didn't know that at the time, of course, but as I started to date when I was about 16, but I came to understand that always having one girlfriend was never enough. I needed more. Uh, I was soon to later find out what that was about was I needed the backup plan because with the abandonment issue, that meant that, you know, my worldview of my inner child was, hey, the people who love you will leave you. Again, not knowing that, but just thinking, okay, this is just me. I like girls and I'll continue to chase them. Right. Tell me a little bit about, um, like when you say abandonment, tell me a little bit what that means for you. Sure. It means it's a fear that, again, the people, whoever you bring into your life are not going to wind up staying, uh, whether it be that 
they discover that there's something about you that's unlovable or they're just not reliable people. So therefore, there is this fear that lies underneath the surface of what you do to protect yourself. Again, that fear is you keep people at a distance. So even the people you become involved with in a romantic relationship, there's a wall that you have up. You're not going to let them that close to you because if you do, you give them the power to hurt you by leaving. See, if I have a wall up and I don't let you get that close to me, if you ever leave me, eh, that's okay. I can replace you. And that early pain that you experienced with the loss of your father, your mother leaving you, you were completely alone. Correct. That's exactly what happened. And that's painful. It is painful. But, you know, as a child, and again, even when my dad died, nobody even talked to me about his death. All it was was that he's gone. So therefore, as a child, you know, when you're alone and you're isolated, you're like, okay, I don't want to think about I don't want to sit here feeling this pain I feel. So a kid, because they don't have a lot of worldviews, I mean, or, or they don't have a lot of worldly experiences, and they also are more, their thinking process is more emotionally based than it is cognitively based. They come up with a solution of how do I deal with this pain? And that solution usually is, I'm not going to think about it. And then right. how do they find, how do they not think about it? They find ways to distract themselves. Too much television, maybe too much food, a lot of time of fantasy in their own head. And that's where I was. I was always in fantasy in my own head of being a sports star or being an entertainer or being someone who was always noticed. And, and that went on for long, long periods of my life. But that's how it's kind of like to make up for that. not being seen when you were when you were a child. I mean, you were left. You, you, there was no one there. You were on your own. You had to find some way to to deal with that pain. All right, that's a defense mechanism that you create. But the pro- and, and it, it served you well as a child. But the problem is when you start to bring it into your adult world and you start to bring it into adult relationships. That's where you're going to have even more difficulty. Right, right, yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how, as you moved into adulthood, that this started to, this abandonment wound started to manifest itself. Well, it was already manifesting itself, as I said, when I was about 16, where, again, always needed to have more than one woman in my life. And, but finally, at 20, about 23, 24, and I was very good friend with this woman and eventually I thought I started to see her differently and I thought wow you know what maybe this is the one this is the one that'll change everything for me so we did get married but then after just a short period of time here I found myself once again looking outside the marriage for companionship and company even though what I had in my marriage was fine but Again, not understanding about my inner child, not understanding that I had an abandonment issue. I just thought, okay, you know what? I'm still a skirt chaser. And so I got caught cheating. My wife wanted to work it out. I said, no, we can't. There's something wrong with me. Uh, I know if we stay together, I'll just continue to do this. So I just moved on and went back into that lifestyle of dating multiple women until finally I met someone else. 
And I said, oh, this is the one. This, this will definitely change. And I, I think, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how this childhood trauma that we have in that moment and all that pain from childhood is there. And then as we move into adulthood, we almost, the pain's still there, but we lose like a a conscious acknowledgement exactly. of it. Like we lose a conscious connection to it, but the pain's still there. And then you find all these strategies to cope with like this pain that you, you in a way don't know is there. That's right. That's exactly right, Wayne. That, and that's what the whole inner child process is that I developed. It is about helping people to go in, go deeper so that they can identify what are those emotional childhood pain points that are still being activated today. See, this is the thing. You take my, take for example, my sense of abandonment which will mean more along the lines of the people who leave you, who love you, will leave you. Well, if anything ever happened where I felt there was this sense of abandonment happening to me today, such as, you know, hey, you know, I go to my wife, my current wife now, who I've been married to for 23 years, and I've been faithful the entire time after doing that work. But if I went to her and I said, hey, you know what? Come on. I really want to take you to lunch. No, I'm too busy. Can't do it. All right. Well, it's fine. Hey, how about dinner? We'll go to dinner. No, I can't do it. All right. And then she comes to me and said, hey, by the way, I'm going away for a weekend with my girlfriend. That kid inside me is really starting to get activated because he's right, thinking right. she doesn't want you. She doesn't want to be with you. That's not the case. That's not reality. But if I let him run the show, Ooh, I put myself in what happened is my risk of acting out has increased. I can't, however, let him guide my action, which I have done subconsciously for decades. I now right, have to right. go over and be in control. So I, I have a question. When did you begin to realize that, I guess, someone else was in control? When did you start to say, wait, man, this this is a problem? Like... I'm engaging in this behavior and I am, I'm using sex as a way to cope and um, I'm using addiction as a way to deal with pain. How did you start to see that? Like, how did you start to realize like something else is going on here? It was in my second marriage where again, I have been unfaithful numerous times and she found out and she wanted to work it out again. She wanted to work it out. And I said, no, I can't. I go, there's definitely something wrong with me. And I walked away from that marriage also. But at that time, when I walked away, I didn't dive right back into that life. What I did was I went and sought therapy. And wow. it was at that time that the counselor who I worked with explained to me what, what, what was going on about the abandonment issue. And it was shortly after that that I wound up meeting my current wife, Terry, who also practices with me here in our practice and as i said to you before we've been married for we've been together for 23 years been married for 21 and as i said i've been faithful the whole time because i came to understand what the big what was the real problem what was the driver that was causing me to act out the way i was what was it like for you and i, I don't know if if it was a moment or it was over time that you started to have this realization that there was this trauma in your past kind of driving the bus. That was during the therapy that I went to, because again, to your point earlier, 
I one, I had no idea that there was a inner child. Two, I never even thought about the fact that my father dying and my mother having a nervous breakdown and the isolation I suffered until I was about 10. I didn't even think of those as traumas. I just right. thought, hey, that was just life. It's just the way it is. Things happen and there's nothing you do about it. When I got, you know, that insight about what really had happened to me and how it was now still playing havoc in my life as an adult, that is when it was like, you know, the light went on. And not only did the light go on in the sense that, oh, you know what, this is the problem, but also all this massive regret about, my gosh, why couldn't I have learned this 20 years ago, 25 years ago, how life could have been so different? Right, right. And, and really begin to kind of see it. And that's extremely painful. It, it is. It is very painful to think that, you know, you have created scorched earth right. in your life and that you've hurt all these people. And I'm not just talking about the two women who are married to you, but all the other women that I had engaged with. I was using them. That's all I was doing. I was just using them. They were nothing but objects. To me, I didn't realize that at the time. Right. But, you didn't realize like how uh, this pain was driving this behavior that was so destructive and not hurt, you know, hurtful to others and also hurtful to yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's why when you get that awakening and you start to realize what's behind it, after you get through that period of regret, now what happens is it's like this euphoria because it's like, oh, I diagnosed, I've been diagnosed. I know what the problem is. It's not just that I'm a pervert. I'm not, I'm not I'm just a skirt chaser as I used to call myself right. and my friend did. I actually, there's something I can do to fix this because as I pointed out before, I didn't think I could fix it. So I would just walk right. away at those times. Right. I think what you're saying, so many people in addiction experience because, you know, you have all this pain, but you're not connected to it. And you just think, I'm just a horrible person. I'm just a rotten person. And you don't realize how much trauma is driving the bus. And then once you kind of have that insight, it does, it gives you hope. It's like, I can do something different now. I can change this. You still have the hurt and pain of your choices that you have to deal with, but I can do something different. I can change it. Right. Right. And to your point, that shame that you feel, because that's what you were describing. Yeah. That is the opposite of what you were just talking about now, because when you start to feel that ugliness within you, when you start to say, look how you know, disgusting I am, that just keeps you in the cycle. You got to go back to your addiction in right. order to forget and not feel. And that's the biggest problem. One of the, the keys of dealing with sexual pornography addiction, really any addiction, is learning how to sit with that emotional pain and understand, you know what? Sitting with it, feeling it, it's not going to kill me. It's going right. to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's not going to kill me. So let's talk about your inner child work and, and using that as a tool 
to start to shift this? Yeah, the inner child concept, as I said, I came up with, basically what it does, it provides insight. And that's what we've been talking about here. I told you my story. I'm helping clients, I'm helping men understand why. Why do I engage in addictive behaviors? And with that knowledge, what that's going to allow them to do is to be able to stay one step ahead of their addiction by identifying what are those core emotional triggers that activate their inner child. So what I've identified for are nine different kids. For example, I'll just run off the names for you right now. The bored child, the unaffirmed child, unnoticed, the emotionally void child, the lack of control kid, the entitled child, who's one of the most dangerous of all of these, the inferior and weak kid, the stressed child, and the sexually early sexually stimulated or sexually abused child. Now, what happens is people go through my process and they look at these children and they read about them and what happened that they became that way. And then they start to feel, oh, you know what? I identify with three or four of these kids, which most people do. Although there are a lot of folks who identify with all nine, but there may only be one or two points within several of them that they're identifying with. But once they do that, then what we're doing, we're saying, okay, so what are the emotional triggers that are associated with each of these children? Like, for example, the unnoticed child is I'm a, one, one of those triggers could be I, I feel invisible. So therefore, if you know, hey, you're at work and you're walking through the hall and you say, hey, Bill, how you doing? And Bill just walked right by you. You know, because Bill's probably in, you know, just in another world at the moment. He's not thinking. But your child looked at that and says, ooh, guess what? You're invisible right now. And he starts to squirm. He starts to get upset. He's starting to get, you know, uh, antsy about it. And that has increased your level, your risk of acting out. Doesn't mean you're going to go run and act out, but if a couple other things happen during the course of the day, that could lead you to be doing that because he's just running underneath the surface. Right. So it kind of gives you a tool to to look at some of these reactions that are based on trauma. It gives you a a, a way of defining it and seeing it and being able to to identify something that maybe in the past was kind of unconscious. Yes, but for that's what we've done. We we have we've recognized the childhood pain points. We understand what are the triggers that will activate those pain points. And then the next most important thing in this whole process is mindfulness. I need to be mindful of my triggers. Like for example, what I do is I have my client, they write their triggers on an index card. Usually you have anywhere between like five and eight emotional triggers. They write them on an index card, they carry it around with them, and they memorize them. And right. I mean, they, they want to know, you know, backwards and frontwards, what are those triggers? So therefore, when an event happens, a negative event happens, and it doesn't have to be a big and negative event. Like I said, it could have been the guy walking down the hall and just didn't notice you. They're like, ooh, wait a second. You know what? That's something that could activate my kid. 
let me go and see what's going on here. And because, again, that kid is going back and he's pulling something out of the storage unit from the path that is so much bigger than this guy just walking by you and not paying attention. These are the kids in school when you were went to the playground to say, hey, you know, I want to play with you. And nobody says anything to you. They just ignore you and keep playing themselves. He's looking at something that's much bigger than what just happened. So we need then wise mind, I call it. Wise mind is when we're not going to sit and we're going to talk to the kid about, hey, you know what? Let me explain to you what just happened. All right. Bill walking by me is not the same as what you're thinking about. Right. That right. It's not to that point. I know he feels it's that way. He feels it has that intensity, but it doesn't. And then, you know, Bill may have just been very busy. He may have, you know, I don't know, whatever. But you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll pop my head into his office later and, you know, see how he's doing. But maybe he's very stressed out. Maybe there's a major problem he's dealing with. But you know what? I'm, I'm sure he was not ignoring me. Right. So it gives you, like, it sounds like this tool gives you the ability to slow down, identify it, be able to talk to that child part, maybe a little more compassionately, and then respond from a space of, uh, like you said, like the wise mind space. Right. And you make a healthy decision. Right. And that's what we're trying to do. You bring up another great point. One thing I'm telling people all the time is you have to slow everything down. But again, <laughs> it's the compulsive behaviors that get us in this place, in this uh, situation in the first place. So therefore, we need to learn how to, how do we remove those? You know, how do we deal and manage with those compulsive that, compulsions that we have? And part of it is I slow down. Part of it is that I am very mindful about everything. Again, after ha- sitting with that pain, see, talking to the kid is about sitting with the pain. Right. And then right. after that, I now come back. I use my wise mind to be able to say, okay, what is the right way to handle this? Because this kid wants one thing. He only wants one thing. He wants comfort. And it, well, what did I say before when I said, what did he learn with a great form of comfort? I don't want to think about it. So now let me go distract myself. Right. So, right. And, and, and for people who have a sex or a porn addiction, you know, they were always finding ways to distract themselves. But at one point they stumble across sex and then they realize, oh my gosh, I just found the most ultimate form of distraction you could ever find. And that becomes their go-to. And now that's why they're using still as they uh, go into their adult world. Right. It, it works. I mean, that's a thing that, uh, you know, sex and porn and, and any other addiction does is it takes you out of your body. You know, you don't, it's easier to feel sexual arousal than it is to feel depression or abandoned or left or hurt. I can just turn that off by engaging in this behavior. That's correct. Just like you said before, I could do it with any other kind of behavior, whether it's food, whether I'm an exercise freak and I just continue to exercise three, four times a day, whether it is drugs, alcohol, work, you know, you can go down the list of what we're using to numb ourselves. And sex and pornography have become a major tool in that area, especially with the easy access that we have to porn now. 
And that's why I'm very, very concerned about the next generation that is now looking at this stuff, even at the age of 10 and 11. For me, when I was younger, if I was to find porn, I had to stumble across it. You know, a friend had to have it or, you know, that was about it. It wasn't really readily available. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And I I think we're going to have to sit with that for a while to see how that impacts this next generation, because this is something really new that humanity across the world, I think, has has never really experienced is, uh, you know, high speed internet porn. So it it is definitely going to be this big experiment. We'll see. We'll see how it impacts us. But I do believe, I believe one thing that for certain that is going to happen with this is because our kids are learning about sex from watching pornography. What's going to happen is young boys are going to be taught it's okay to objectify girls. Right. And young girls are going to learn it's okay to be objectified. Right. And that is going to be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to we're going to see how that plays out in our culture and and uh, I hope that we'll be able to have a a healthy conversation about it and and what that's going to be and if people need help and support they can be able to get that. So tell me a little bit more about as you've done this work with people how has it impacted your life? Well, I mean, for me this was a calling in my life before I became a counselor 10 years ago. I was in corporate America as a marketing and advertising guy. And uh, as you can imagine, I'm living kind of the wildlife and making big bucks and getting a lot of perks, all the things. And that was my whole life. And it was after I married my third wife that I started my relationship with, with God and Jesus Christ. And with that, I became closer in my connection with him turned me to a point where I heard him say, hey, you know, I got something else for you to do. We're moving away from corporate America. You're leaving it. I want you to be a Christian counselor. And that's what happened. And I went and went back to school, got my master's degree, did all the state work that needed to be licensed. And then, you know, I opened up just a generalist. I was going to see everybody. I was seeing people with anxiety. I was seeing people with depression. But then what happened in a very short time if these guys started walking into my office who were struggling with pornography and sex. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is me 15 years ago. Right, or, or, right. Or even 10 years ago. I cannot believe this. And with that, when I saw that and the numbers started to grow, I said, you know what? I got to go and get my certification in this area, uh, which I did. I got several. And that's what I focus on. My business is strictly dealing with trying to help men overcome, really manage their pornography or sexual addiction. And for me, it's been a blessing. I've never felt more at ease than when I'm sitting in that counseling chair across from people. And I know that sounds crazy because, again, you think about the stories that come at you. I mean, they're, they're really they're heartbreaking. Right, but right. Men, they are. And you get involved in this process, they become giddy about it. It is an exciting thing. And why? Because they're learning about themselves. They're, they are getting all this self reflection that they never had before. And now they see themselves as broken and not bad. 
Okay, I'm a broken person. There are things that happened in my life that set these that set this wheel in motion. But I now have the ability to stop that wheel from moving. Right. And I have the ability to be able to do good things moving forward. Right. I mean, it, it really sounds like you were able to take your own trauma, transform it, and then use that as a tool to help other people who are suffering. That's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. Being able to do what I did. Now, again, what I was going through and doing all of this, I didn't have nine different children identified. All I knew what my major pain point was, uh, that was the fear that someone's going to leave me. So see, what I was always doing, if I had one foot in and one foot out, and therefore what I was doing, I was leaving people before they could leave me. Very interesting fact. No woman's ever left me. So that fear that I had, it never came to to be except in my own head. So therefore, again, it was not something I really needed to be scared of and frightened of. But if you don't know what it is that's driving it, then there's no way that you can ultimately come up with the conclusion as a solution for resolving the problem. Definitely. I think that's so important to be able to have the language, to be able to speak about your pain and your hurt gives you the ability to transform it. And then reaching out for help is just, that's the biggest part, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, I mean, that people have to hit that point where they do want change in their lives. Right. I get folks who come in here because their wives drag them in. And they're, they'll be talking to me and they'll be like, well, you know what? I don't see any issue with pornography. It's not like I'm with another woman. I don't understand why she's so upset. And then I have to sit there and I have to complain about how, you know, what you're doing is you're eroding her self-worth. She's thinking that you want something different, that you are not happy with her, her appearance. And therefore, it's like a slap in the face to her. And the other thing I need to try to talk to them about so they could understand is, you know what, I, I'm of the belief that no woman who has a very secure attachment is going to enter the world of pornography. And the reason I and the what the way I look at that is I ask the question, tell me the time when you met a twelve year old girl and you said, What would you like to do when you grow up? And she said, well, I think I want to take my clothes off in front of a camera and have sex with strange men and women. I go, when did that happen? And no, per no person has ever been able to answer that question for me. Now, do I think there's some young girls out there who may look at that and say, well, that sounds like it's kind of cool. Yeah, I do. But you know why? Because somebody's already hurt them. Their self-worth and their self-esteem has already started to be eroded and they'll continue to allow people to use them moving forward in their lives because they don't understand that their that pain point they suffered in as a child is still being activated today right and i think that like what you're saying is really being able to understand our trauma understand our history 
so that you know we can realize where sometimes our decisions are being made they're they're made by this wound you know and having the right language to talk about it can help us make decisions that are better for us that maybe fit more with our values fit with uh, w- what's good for us yeah the, the, and the thing about it though is probably the most difficult part of all of this is there are some people just like there's some people who don't want to be in therapy because as you mentioned before okay they haven't hit that bottom they haven't hit the point where they're saying you know what i want this out of out of my life there are other people who are like i don't want to look back i i don't want to see what happened i don't want to acknowledge that my parents really weren't there for me when I was trying to deal with my emotional crisis and all they were telling me was, you know what, just deal with it and, and leave me alone. You know, they don't want to look back and see the pain that they suffered, whether they had been bullied or if they've been sexually abused or, you know, they had a sibling who would torment them. They don't want to see this. They don't want to see the fact that, oh, I lived very lonely. I was lonely. I was isolated. Nobody seemed to care or notice me. And that's where I have to very gently start to walk them back there by demonstrating to them through my story as well as other stories of, you know, hey, folks, you know what? There's a good, there's a benefit to going back and looking at this. And we're not going to push you. We're going to go at your pace, at your speed, but when you look at it, you're going to see that there is something you get out of it. And as I said, when that does happen, and while that is difficult, the more and more they learn about themselves, they get very excited about the process and what has gone on in their life because they've seen real change. Right. They're able to really transcend that trauma but like you said it it can be so painful to go back there but knowing that you can do it in a supportive environment and that you know people can walk you through that is just so critical so eddie um we're coming up on our time and what i usually like to ask at the end end of the episode is if there's one thing you want to tell anybody out there listening what would it be well, it would be that, you know what, it's it's very difficult to admit that you need help. And you're dealing with a lot of shame and guilt. You feel like, you know what, I'm the only person in the world who really at the depth of despair that these things can bring to me. And it's not true. There are many, many people who are dealing with the same kind of pain that you have. And I would just ask that you please have the strength and the courage to step out and say, hey, you know what? I do need help. Uh, There's a lot of great resources that are out there that you can tap into so that you can make those substantial changes in your life and that you can finish strong. Thank you so much, Eddie, for saying that and to encouraging people to to reach out. How can they find your information or how can they get a hold of you if they want to uh, get more information? Yeah, um, they can go to the website uh, innerchild-sexaddiction. Again, it's www.innerchild-sexaddiction.com. Uh, and I have a bunch of information on there about the inner child process 
and what it entails and involves. Um, they can also find me on Facebook. They can find me on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I don't have all those handles available, but just put in Caparucci and you'll find that. You can give them all to me and I will put them in the show notes as well. So oh, people well, can go I'll there. I'll do that. And finally, if they want to email me, they can reach me at Ed Kappa, E-D-C-A-P-P-A at gmail.com. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast and sharing your wisdom. Well, thank, thank you, Dwayne, for having me. And again, I really appreciate all the work you do, provide education, and more importantly, to provide hope and inspiration to people. Oh, thank you. You too. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 103. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Thank you for rating and reviewing it in iTunes. And thank you for sharing it with a friend. I hope that you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. Take care. Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how-to for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.